Welcome to Wealthy Behavior, talking money and wealth with Heritage Financial, the podcast that digs into the topics, strategies, and behaviors that help busy and successful people build and protect their personal wealth. I'm your host, Sammy Azuz, the president and CEO of Heritage Financial, a Boston-based wealth management firm working with high net worth families across the country for longer than 25 years. Now let's talk about the wealthy behaviors that are key to a rich life. Welcome to the May Investment Edition of the Wealthy Behavior Podcast, where I talk to our Chief Investment Officer about what's going on in the markets and what you need to know about in the investment universe right now. Markets are off to a sneaky good start this year, I would think. People would be surprised to know that global stocks are up about 6%, bonds up close to 4%, the U.S. market, stock market up uh, also close to 6%, a little bit more. And this continues uh, recovery uh, in all of those markets that started uh, in mid-October of last year. So coming off the bottom, bonds are up about 7%, the S&P 500 up close to 12 the global stock market, uh, which includes the U.S., doing a little bit more than that, up over 15 So, Bob, it's nice to see the, this rebound. It's nice to see these numbers. Uh, but I know that you wanted to start, I think, where we've been focused on a lot lately, which is the inflation and Fed, the Fed, because the Fed just hiked rates and changed their messaging a little bit. Yeah, I mean, that, that has been the theme in markets with inflation in 2022 and, and the Fed um, being on the, this rate um, hiking path. And now that they've raised rates for uh, what's the 10th time taking the Fed funds rate over 5%, they changed the language in their statement um, to say that they may pause now and, and markets are expecting them to be done. And it's more a question of can they hold at this level and for how long? Historically, um, they only get to it in a rate hiking cycle. They raise rates, raise, and then get to a peak and only hold for a couple months before they have to cut. And um, their messaging and projections show that they're not going to do that, uh, but the market is expecting them to do that. So that's where there's a bit of a disconnect between market expectations, um, meaning about 80 basis points of cuts by year end and what the Fed is saying, which is basically this level or higher by year end. So we're, we're kind of um, at a wait and see game. Uh, Who's usually right, Bob? It's a good question. I, I think the market does tend to be right a, a little more. Um, but through this cycle, the Fed's been right more. Okay. And that's um, kind of the story in 2022 um, with rates kept going up and more. And um, we saw the fastest rate hiking cycle ever. And the market didn't expect that. Didn't believe that the Fed was going to do it, right? No. And then yeah. the Fed did it, and you have banks like Silicon Valley Bank going under. And it, it, you know, in defense of the Fed, the Fed's like, "Look, we told you we were going to do that, and you guys just didn't believe us." Yeah. So, unpack that a little bit, Bob, because for rate hikes to very quickly lead to rate cuts, it's because the rate hikes slow down, damage the economy. So now we need to pretty quickly cut rates to provide a tailwind to the economy, right? Exactly, yeah, it's like, you know, foot on the gas, foot on the brake, um, you know, tight monetary policy is raising rates. And um, that, that's where historically, you know, there's a saying they raise rates until something breaks, something breaks, sends you into a recession, then they need to take the foot off the gas, off the brake and put it onto the gas. Um, so th that's what the market's expecting, which is, is what we've seen historically. 
Um, you know, Elizabeth Warren is, um, you know, frequently reminds people of that, you know, seeing her on CNBC and in Congress that the Fed never goes through a rate hiking cycle, increases unemployment the way they, they are talking about it and projecting it to and not sending us into a recession and then needing to come in and, and save the day with lower rates. So that's the historical playbook. Um, but I mean, this morning we're recording on Friday the 5th and um, a, a strong jobs report came out. So unemployment going into this report was three and a half percent and expectations were for it to tick up to 3.6 from okay. 3.5 and instead um, 253,000 new jobs and it went down to 3.4 and 3.4 is the, the, the record low in the last 50 years or so. Um, so the, the Fed's been projecting for unemployment to go up by 1% over the course of the year. And rather than going up, it's going down. So is that a good news is bad news thing? Because it will maybe motivate the Fed. Although they said, did, did they say they weren't going to hike anymore? Or did no. they say it's just something softer than they had in, in prior messaging? The committee will closely monitor incoming information and assess the implications for monetary policy. Additional policy firming may be appropriate to return inflation to the 2% target. So it's monitor, kind of wait and see, as opposed to the, the previous language in the statement was like the committee anticipates that some additional policy firming uh, may, be, um, may be appropriate. So, so uh, I guess, Pat, is this a good news? Is bad news if you are tired of the rate hikes and you think what they've done should filter through and impact inflation enough? It, it's, a, it's a tough one um, because it, it is good for the economy. It's good for the people who are in the uh, no recession camp. Mm -hmm. It's like, nope, the, the economy is holding in there. Um, but with that of a, coming a strong economy and strong job market comes, the Fed has kind of a, a reason to raise rates more and the market is not expecting that. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, you got inflation numbers coming down, jobs staying strong. The Fed has claimed that they can stick the landing without tipping us into a recession. I know you've pointed to some, a lot of people who who think otherwise. So maybe so far, if we want to be optimistic on a Cinco de Mayo, the, the plan is, is tracking uh, uh, well so far. So, Bob, the markets have done well, despite the well, things that we've talked about month in and month out and other things that we're going to talk about later on uh, today, like the debt ceiling. Why do you think the market is, you know, just muddling through this okay? I think part of it is um, that the economy has remained relatively strong. There's been a lot of calls for recessions. We've talked about it. The leading economic indicators have pointed there and that it just hasn't come so far. So seeing um, you know, decent stability in the economy um, along with you know, higher rates that the market has absorbed reasonably well. Uh, you know, some issues obviously in the banking sector that have come up, but for the most part, uh, you know, Apple came out with good earnings yesterday. That There have been, um, you know, good earnings on, um, with companies and the economy's held its own. So, uh, you know, the, 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 the big bad recession hasn't come and that's been a positive surprise for some. People have been ner nervous about corporate earnings, right? And so far they've hung in there. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing that we have talked a little bit about that still seems to be a lingering headline is this banking crisis, right? Uh, so Silicon Valley Bank and another bank in New York, 
And then it was First Republic and they got scooped up by JP Morgan and people thought, well, maybe this is going to slow down. But then bank stocks have had a terrible week. And I, I sent you a headline that had me thinking for multiple reasons. Dow drops more than 300 points, turns negative for the year as bank fears grow. So what is going on with this banking crisis and should investors really be worried about it? Yeah, so the, the, there's a lot to it. The banking system's complicated. Um, but something I, I heard the other day that resonated with me is if you look at the U.S., there's about 4,500 banks in the United States. And then um, by comparison, there's 95 to 100 in Australia. Oh, wow. So you got, you got 45x banks in the U.S. compared to Australia. And um, if you look at population or GDP, uh, the U.S. is like around 15 to 20 times the size. So if you kind of do the, the, the bank per person or bank per GDP, bank per income, however you want to look at it, um, the U.S. Is, is two to three times overbanked compared to the Australian model. And um, when, when you think about it, there's there are a lot of um, regional banks out there. You go down Main Street and th there's there's just a, a lot of banking options. And um when you you just step back and look at the, the the banking business model with what they call the uh, fractional reserve banking system where you deposit $100 and you think that $100 is available whenever you want it and um the bank may keep 25 of that liquid but 75 of it turns into loans what's happened over the last decade is these banks have taken their deposits and made loans you know mortgages business loans made investments at lower rates. And because they've done that with what, what's called their loan book, um, lending out at, at lower fixed long-term rates, they can't be competitive with yields on their deposits. So I've looked around at, at local banks and, you know, what can I get in a savings account or a money market? And it's just not competitive. And, um, you know, we, we can go ahead and buy T-bills yielding close to 5% now. Um, but banks, uh, for the most part, especially in business accounts, can't compete with that at all. So we do have a, a setup here. And the reason why they can't compete with it is they don't have the cash. That right. their, their reserves are in loans at lower yields than the current rate. So um, the, the tricky situation that banks are in is that they're not competitive um, on savings anymore. And that can lead to people saying, you know what, what, what am I doing with my reserves only getting 1% when I can get 5% in a government money market? Um, what banks have in their favor is that reserves are typically sticky. Like if you think personally, how many times in your professional career have you changed your uh, checking account where your, your paycheck comes in? Like most people might do it once a decade. You're not shopping around banks every year. So they've um, been able to rely on um, stickiness with operating accounts, but um, there is a concern that as rates get to 5% and above, that might be enough for people to say, hey, you know what, this getting 1% when I can get five elsewhere, I, maybe I should make a change. So um, long-winded way of saying, you know, we, we might have a few too many banks at 4,500 and those that aren't competitive on um, rates and aren't making up for it with service, um, I wouldn't be surprised if, if they lose their deposits and that's game over for banks. Now, as it gets to markets, um, the good news is where I see this risk is with the small local regional banks. And that's a, 
1% of the market. Uh, and then it is it's kind of a zero-sum game because you have a loser, but then someone else is going to pick up that business and win. So from a, a stock market standpoint, it can create some volatility, be in the headlines, but this is not a 2008 financial crisis. I've seen research on the big banks and they seem fine. And those are the ones that, you know, have market caps of $100 billion and you don't want them to go under. And um, that does not appear to be a, a, a meaningful risk right now. So we're seeing in this instance, the lag effect of the tighter monetary policy hitting these banks as well. That's the phrase, like cumulative and lag effect of monetary policy with all these rate cuts, it's just you know, one after another, rate, excuse me, yep, rate hikes. Um, it's now that rates are at 5% and they're sitting there with loans at two and three. You know, th that's, that's where um, when the Fed raises rates, it does have real implications in the economy. And one is how it does hit the banking system. And yeah, so the other part of that headline, Bob, was that the Dow Jones was down year to date, which it is now still on the 5th of May. But I started the podcast talking about how the S&P and global stocks are up over 6%. So I think it's a good opportunity to maybe talk to our listeners, educate our listeners, because we do get this question a lot. What's the difference between the Dow Jones and the S&P and which one should I be watching to know how the market is doing? And a lot of times they're not too dissimilar in their return pattern, but for one to be slightly negative and one to be over six, I think is meaningful. So what is the difference between the Dow and the S&P and what would you point listeners to if they want to get a good sense of how the U.S. market is doing? Yeah, it's it's a good question. We've talked about writing like a, a little blog on this because it is um, interesting in, in some regards. So um, the Dow Jones is what's called a price weighted index. So it's an index that assumes you own one share of um, loosely describe the top 30 companies. Um, and what that means is that a stock that has a share price that's higher, like if one stock has a share price of $100 a share and another stock has a share price of $10 a share, you're putting $100 into company A and $10 into company B. So company A has a 10x impact, uh, but it doesn't take into consideration total shares outstanding. So in looking at the components of the Dow Jones, the number one holding is United Health. United Health is a 9.7% weight. Um, and that, that's because the, the stock price is, is the highest. So it's not Apple, which has the largest market cap. So it's just kind of a, a goofy construct the way um, the Dow's put together. Whereas the S&P is um, cap weighted, market cap weighted. So as Standard & Poor's S&P uh, does have their criteria, like they do look for profitability and some other things, but it's basically the largest 500 companies in the US and it's um, ranked or weighted based on market capitalization. So the biggest companies, Apple is the largest holding, um, the 500th is the kind of the 500th largest holding. So the S&P is, is um, definitely more um, indicative of like what the, average U.S. investor in large stocks is delivering, is returning. Um, the Dow Jones still gets the headlines, but the, the construction of it is, um, I think, a little outdated. Okay. So definitely a strong vote there for the S&P in terms of trying to track how the U.S. market is performing. I just think the media loves the Dow because the numbers are bigger. 
So if the market's down 1%, they can say Dow down 330 with red banner headlines. Whereas if the S&P is down a percent, they can say S&P is down 40. And even though it's the exact same percent, it doesn't seem as dramatic or exciting. So it's just the, the clickbait, you know, create fury in individual investor eyes. But um, thank you for that overview. And you don't have to comment on my editorializing. <laughs> um, so uh, we've seen the bond market recover. And uh, after the worst year ever in 2022, the US bond market is doing well this year. And as I said, it you know started late last year. We've been pretty active in our bond portfolios, uh, including some uh, switches that we're you know, contemplating right now. So what advice would you have for investors about the bond market just based on what you're seeing in our portfolios? Yeah, in general, it's a good time to own bonds. Um, yields have gone up quite a bit over the last 17 months or so, basically since the start of 2022. Um, and you do need to look at a few things within bonds. What sector do you want to be in? Like municipals, treasuries, corporates, securitized? and then what term uh short intermediate long to, to put it simply um and that that does get to your goals and objectives so you know we have to be careful on a podcast I, there's not just one right bond position for all sure. listeners but um in general if it is more like long-term money but you want bonds in there to play a, a role to help manage risk going out in term we think makes sense to more intermediate term and, and not being um you know, caught in the trap of an inverted yield curve and being too heavy short term. So if you do have a decent time horizon and, you know, you want to be clipping coupons for years to come, uh, locking in yields that we're seeing now ranging from three to five percent or so for intermediate term bonds, uh, we, we think now is a good time to be positioned that way as opposed to uh, kind of falling for what um, may only be a temporary opportunity with very short-term bonds where you can get like 5% in a you know six-month T-bill. Uh, but six months from now, uh, when reinvestment risk pops up and that, that turns to cash, uh, the, the landscape may not be as attractive. Okay. And any any other changes? I, I know you, we've talked about maybe municipals versus non-municipals. Yeah. yeah. Municipals sold off last year quite a bit. So uh, for taxable investors, uh, it, it was a, a great opportunity, really, um, no matter where your, your tax rate was. So if you were, say, you know, in the, in the mid 20s, 25% um, or so for your uh, federal tax bracket, uh, municipals made sense. Um, they outperformed last year. Municipals um, on an after tax basis relative to corporates and, and securitized, or I could say corporates and securitized underperform municipals. So now the, the hurdle's gone up a little bit. So municipals, um, we're taking a look at it, and for you know investors who are you know around that the twenty four percent Fed bracket, municipals may not make as much sense. It may be time to take the higher yield and pay the tax, um, and do better than the lower tax exempt yield. Um, it's looking like people in the top tax bracket, municipals still make sense. So get into the weeds a little bit, and and um, you know we do that on behalf of our clients coming through portfolios and tax returns, which, you know, for most clients who are listening, when advisors ask you to send in your tax return, please do, because uh, <laughs> we do look at it as part of the portfolio. So um, more selective use of municipals going forward than the broader case we entered the year with. Correct. 
Okay. And what, what drove that change, Bob? Was it, it's just the performance of the, of the bonds? Yeah, it's the performance of the bonds. So last year, uh, municipals sold off quite a bit in the first part of the year. So they were cheap. Um, we added, and then they outperformed. So um, typically, if you invest in municipal bonds, you would expect a lower return than taxable bonds because yep. the return's tax-free, but the return was higher. So you, you did better before taxes and you had the benefit of not paying taxes in, in the second half of last year. So we saw outperformance in municipals um, in 2022, in okay. the, the second half of 2022. Got it. Okay. And what else is your team looking at or, or thinking about as it relates to the portfolios in, you know, heading into May, June, July, the rest of the year? What's on your team's plate? Yeah. So we are looking at um, adding a little more money to bonds. We do like the opportunity uh, in high quality bonds where you're, you're getting good yields and have the benefit of if a recession does come, if a bear market does come, you know, a little more severe in the second half of 2023, um, you're getting paid for that protection. So on the margin, just rebalancing really and adding a couple percent to bonds for um, you know, many portfolios is something that that um, we're looking into doing, um, but not big moves like like one to two percent swings um, in addition to uh, profit taking. So that that's really the the main thing that we've been looking at. Got it. Okay. So Bob, we were been getting a uh, very frequently asked question, including a listener driven question. And as a reminder, we do love to answer these. So if you have them, please send them to wealthybehavior at heritagefinancial.net. But maybe to no one's surprise, uh, the question relates to the debt ceiling and uh, various versions of the question, but they all lead to, should I be worried about the debt ceiling? And what can you do in a portfolio to protect against it? Yeah. So yeah, it's definitely a question that, that started coming up earlier this year, and uh, we've been hearing it more, and I expect it to only continue as um, you know Congress is, is debating and, and voting on this. But to put it into perspective, um, the, the federal budget is about $6.2 trillion in outlays expenses. So they, they, they spend $6.2 trillion revenues, so tax receipts. Uh, mainly are about 4.8 trillion. So there's a deficit of 1.4 trillion. How do they fund the deficit of 1.4 trillion? They issue debt. So just first and foremost, if they don't raise the debt ceiling, what happens? They still have that 4.8 trillion in revenues. It doesn't mean no one has to pay taxes anymore. So it, 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 it in some sense just forces them to operate and only spend what's coming in. And, um, and we, we went through this um, about a decade ago. Um, and 2011. It was, was 2011. Yeah. yeah, 2000 was the big one. Yeah. And if you if you recall back then, um, you know, the, when it gets to that time, it's not the government can't spend any money. It's just they need to prioritize. And that that deficit of one point four trillion, you can't spend it because you can't raise it. So um, that's when we saw non-essential services get shut down. In an example I, I've used is back then, um, there's a website called time.gov and you can go there and get the time to the second. That's official. And I, I used to, in a, in a very nerdy way, use time.gov to set my clock and my computers before it all happened automatically. I don't use it anymore because it all happens for you. But I remember in 2011, time.gov got shut down. You went to the website, 
and it said like there's a pop-up like this is a non-essential service and due to congress being knuckleheads um the website's down and i was like oh interesting that's what a non-essential service looks like and you know it's it's things like that and you know where they draw the line on um, non-essential services but th there might be some pain like that depending on how long it takes them to get a deal done um but what i don't see them um prioritizing or not prioritizing is treasury debt payments um that's something that um you know it's the backed by the full faith and credit of the united states treasury and uh, i think they take that pretty seriously so um you know the 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 panic the armageddon type talks of oh they're going to default on the debt that just won't happen um I mean, we've talked about it, like the Social Security Trust Fund holds T-bills. Do you really think Congress wants to just wipe that out and, and default on all their debt? They're not going to do it. Um, talk about a banking system problem that would happen if they just stopped paying on treasuries. Now, would would there be a delay in payment, which would still be a technical default? I hope not. I don't think so. But, you know, things like that could happen. For the most part, it's... it's um, at, on one hand, a really frustrating um, process and doesn't highlight a strength of our democracy. But at the other, um, on the other end, it's actually um, good that they're forced to look at the debt and take it seriously. Because um, while this does seem kind of like a short-term technical issue, um, we, we do have some concerns about the overall level of government debt, and it has been um, climbing over um the last few decades as we're now up to about 100 percent debt to gdp and as we have been accumulating debt at a faster rate than the economy has been growing which is the issue so just pausing on that um governments don't need to pay back all their debt you don't need zero debt like if you go through the the mental exercise of what would happen if the government paid off all its debt it'd be kind of interesting because there'd be there'd be no treasury bonds for people to invest in there'd be no risk-free rate to set asset prices so that's fine it's just you can't grow debt um indefinitely at a rate faster than your economy and we've been doing that um not the indefinite part but growing it faster than the economy up to 100 debt to gdp and now that you pair the elevated debt levels with higher interest rates so paying four or five percent to service that debt it, it's, and that's that's partly why the market didn't believe that the Fed was going to raise rates as as aggressively as it did. Right? They they had a whole, you know, I wouldn't say a theory or a conspiracy theory, but it was basically like, look, I know the Fed's independent, but if they raise rates to the extent that they say they're going to, it's really going to increase the debt payments to the point that's not sustainable for the country. Yeah, the, it, it's it's a real um, kind of suboptimal part of the structure where the, the Fed raises rates and who are they raising rates on? The largest issuer of debt is the Treasury. So <laughs> they're, they're kind of raising rates on, on the Treasury on themselves on their own debt, um, which ultimately should come out of our pockets as taxpayers. Right. So um, yeah. it's a lot, a lot to it. And it's it's not something... I mean, from an investment standpoint, I would say more head in the sand, like don't worry about your portfolio, but it also is a real matter, the, the fiscal health of the country. Um, so hopefully this, you know, gets some bipartisan agreement on 
um, getting, we don't need a, a completely balanced budget. Like you can have a, a deficit. It yeah. just needs to be modest enough that it, that it's about proportional to economic growth. That, and I, Bob, I learned something new about you every time we podcast. So uh, for our listeners who are concerned, time.gov is still <laughs> up and running. I'm looking at it right now. We're just about 9.31 and 58 seconds in the morning on the 5th. And uh, I'm just going to have this site open. And if it uh, if I don't see it one day, I'll know we're uh, we're running close to a debt ceiling issue. Yes. Now, now what? Apple just does this for you? Yeah. Yeah. It just happens on the watch, on the phone, <laughs> the computer, just all updates. It's nice. I, I mean, I, I still set the microwave when the power goes out at home, but uh, in the stove, but I don't need to go to time.gov to do yeah. it. Well, it's it's up and running if anybody wants to check it out. And so, Bob, uh, basically, it would be such a cataclysmic event, a default that investors couldn't prepare for it and, and shouldn't prepare for it. No, like we, we've we've had that question come in, like specifically, how do I prepare for it? And I mean, it, it's a little it's a bit tricky because typically if, if I say something bad in the market's going to happen, what do you do? Well, you go to treasuries or T-bills, like, but that is where it, it's going to happen. So it, it's... It um, can get priced in temporarily, and it, it, it'd be like paying insurance. You know, when this passes, markets will recover, um, but there could be some volatility in between. Got it. All right, Bob. If there's one thing you want folks to know about the markets right now, uh, as they uh, there's this old adage, "Sell in May and go away," which obviously we're not talking about. But if you wanted people to know something about the markets in May of 2023, what would it be? We're at an interesting point with. Um, the, the Fed raise uh, rate hiking cycle. You know, you don't see these too often where, you know, you have a kind of an economic boom, Fed raises rates and they go on it and we're probably at the end. And, um, you know, you hear about soft landings, hard landings, and you, know, you can you can kind of picture the airplane and the, 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 the landing mechanisms are out and um, plane's about to touch down. And um, it'll be interesting the next few months to see if they can pull it off. So, um, you know, we're not making forecasts on either way with certainty, but we're just at an interesting point in markets. And I think it does highlight diversification is um, is key. And there's fortunately a lot of different ways to invest in, in attractive manners now that we have, you know, good valuations in overseas equities, good yields and bonds, uh, opportunities in the U.S. So um, just an interesting time in markets. Great. Thank you, Bob. I appreciate your insight, as I know our listeners always do. And uh, thank you for listening, everyone. How to Build Your Next Million, Heritage Financial's newly released ebook teaches investors about the tools and strategies that can help them save, keep, grow, and protect their assets. This free ebook can be accessed in this episode's show notes and on our website at heritagefinancial.net. Today is a great day to learn how to build your next million. Thank you for listening to Wealthy Behavior. If you found the conversation useful, please leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share this episode so those around you can live a rich life too. We appreciate your feedback and questions. Please email us at wealthybehavior@heritagefinancial.net. For more insights, subscribe to our weekly blog at heritagefinancial.net and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Check out my personal finance blog at thebostonadvisor.com. Wealthy Behavior is produced by Kristen Kastner and Michelle Kakinis. 
This educational podcast is brought to you by Heritage Financial Services, LLC, located in the greater Boston area. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast or that of the speaker are subject to change and do not constitute investment advice or a recommendation regarding any specific product or security. There is no guarantee that any investment or strategy discussed will be successful or will achieve any particular level of results. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of principal.